Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, and this week I have the second episode in my 100 Years of Fascism miniseries. This episode is covering the 1930s. So we're picking up where we left off last time. Uh, last time in the 1920s, we saw the rise, like the appearance and meteoric rise of fascist parties in many countries in Europe in particular. Uh, obviously, in particular, we're talking about Italy and Germany, but I also talked about the rise of fascism in countries like Romania and also the United Kingdom. By the 1930s, however, this is when we see the seizure of state power in Germany uh, and also the maintenance of state power in Italy. So I'm going to talk about Italy first. In the 1930s, the Italian fascist party is in power and has been in power for quite some time. So now they're really firmly entrenched in there. Uh, they are reorganizing the Italian state and the Italian society in the image that the fascist party wants. Uh, they're forming major youth movements. Um, they're making party membership limited uh, so that like, you know, people can't just uh, bandwagon on after the fascist party was already in power. But it's also mandatory for getting government offices and getting certain other kinds of contracts. This is pretty common for fascist groups once they have taken power uh, to limit membership, but also make it mandatory for certain levels of social power. Uh, the Italians are also passing at this point uh, massive social programs. Uh, we're talking like pensions, uh, the equivalent of social security, uh, major investments in education, the arts, culture. This is also not particularly unusual for fascist organizations, which are, after all, not elitist, but rather popular. Uh, they come from the ground up. Fascist organizations are populist movements uh, that consist of large groups of people. Uh, and they at least ostensibly are for the, you know, every man, right? You know, they're supposed to be uh, for anybody in society, for, for the majority of the people in their society. This is also in the 1930s when Italy sees a codification of the uh, symbiotic relationship that the Italian fascist state had with the Vatican. Uh, essentially, this agreement uh, was one of cooperation and non-interference. The 1930s is also when the Italian fascist state essentially creates Vatican City as a separate country uh, in order to separate the Italian fascist state from the uh, temporal powers of the Pope, uh, an arrangement that continues to this day. Uh, that is why Vatican City is the country that it is. That's why it works the way that it does. The 1930s is also the culmination of Italy's uh, very, very long attempt at uh you know, just straight up colonialism in Africa. Uh, their colonial war in Ethiopia, which was a repeat of a previous Italian attempt to conquer Ethiopia in the 19th century, starts in 1935. Uh, they conquer Ethiopia in 1936. In the wake of the fallout from this war, Italy leaves the League of Nations, which is one of the harbingers of the end of the geopolitical order uh, that would culminate in the Second World War. So I'm going to take a break from Italy to jump into uh, talking about Germany at a similar time, the early and mid-1930s. So recall again that the Nazis had spent most of the 1920s building up power and getting, you know, bigger and bigger chunks of the German parliament, which is called the Reichstag. Um, so by the early 1930s, this strategy has paid off. Uh, major elections turn in the Nazis' favor. 
Uh, Hitler is almost uh, inaugurated as the president of Germany in 1932. He, he just loses the presidency. Uh, and by the early 30s, they have major seats in parliament, as well as an extremely large paramilitary organization, the SA, uh, which numbers are, at least it claims, uh, about half a million people in Germany. By the early 1930s, the Nazis and the communists are both the biggest parties in the Reichstag. Uh, and in an attempt to prevent the communists from gaining power, German conservatives and also liberals, as in like lowercase liberals, choose Hitler as their representatives. They say, they say like, okay, well, we have to choose somebody to be the chancellor. They've had a number of elections in which the Nazis and the communists are the most powerful parties. They don't want to choose the communists, so they choose the Nazis instead. Hitler is appointed the chancellor, which is the prime minister in Germany, of a minority government, which means that the Nazis are not a majority of the seats in parliament. They don't even represent a majority of the seats in parliament. Uh, they're just sort of the best that it can happen. So the president of Germany appoints Hitler as the chancellor on the 30th of January in 1933. And after a series of quick new elections and new laws, which allow the Reichstag cabinet, which Chancellor Hitler controlled, uh, to enact laws by themselves, like without the approval of the parliament or the president. Um, the Nazis essentially had total control of the country by the 23rd of March, like three months later. That's how quickly this happened. Uh, so the Nazi party is founded in the 1920s. It has a slow, but then very meteoric rise to power in the late 1920s. Uh, Hitler becomes the chancellor on the 30th of January. And by that time in March, he is essentially the dictator of Germany. Of course, at this point, the Nazis are following something like the playbook that the Italians were following earlier. Of course, there are some differences. Uh, if you want um, a good book about this is Hitler's 30 Days to Power, uh, which talks about the ways in which Hitler consolidated his control over the German state. Uh, but afterwards, there is a similar, like I said, a similar playbook that the Italians were following, a unification of the party and the state, as in requiring party membership for state service and for getting government contracts and things like that, a turn against more radical fascists. Uh, this is what is known as the Night of the Long Knives, in which the Nazi party purged itself of some of its more radical members a turn towards political policing and social control, and also similar social support. Uh, so like pensions and healthcare systems, which were specifically organized to be extremely discriminatory against people whom the Nazis did not want to be in their country, uh, but extremely supportive of the people that they wanted to be in their country. Uh, there were uh, actually very big government expenditures uh, in terms of education, uh, maternal care, things like that. Uh, the 1930s is also when Nazi Germany annexed Austria, uh, which had had its own local fascists and also Nazi-affiliated fascists uh, in 1938. Uh, this event is called the Anschluss. The late 1930s also sees the beginnings of the Holocaust in Nazi Germany. The Nuremberg Laws were passed, uh, which were a series of discrimination laws against Jewish people. Uh, the late 1930s also uh, saw Kristallnacht, a night of um, violent purging of Jewish businesses and Jewish people in German cities. Uh, the late 1930s is also the start of the resettlement and ghetto programs uh, in which uh, the Nazi government moved Jewish people and people of Jewish descent uh, around the country and put them into specific parts of various cities. 
With the outbreak of World War II, eventually in uh, 1939, this is also the beginning of uh, ghettoization, a process of resettlement, of moving Jewish people from certain parts of cities into very, very, very small uh, circumscribed parts of the city. Uh, this also saw the beginning of organized killing of Jewish people, specifically in Poland, by the invading German military. The 1930s, of course, also sees the origins of the alliance between Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. This alliance is formally codified in 1936, shortly after Hitler's seizure of power in Germany, um, and it prepares for the start of World War II in earnest in Europe uh, with German invasion of Poland in 1939. So obviously I'm going to be covering World War I in next week's episode, Fascism in the 1940s, uh, which will also cover the conclusion of these experiments with actual state power, uh, actual fascist state power. But of course, these episodes aren't just about uh, the fascists that succeeded in seizing state power. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about fascist organizations in the 1930s that didn't actually make it, you know, that, that didn't succeed where the Italians and the Germans did. Uh, another prominent example of this, maybe the most prominent, is in Spain. Uh, in Spain, the fascist organization uh, that you might have heard of is called the Falange, um, but they were a, there was a whole panoply of fascist organizations operating in Spain. Uh, one of them is the Falange Española. Uh, the other one is the Junta Ofensiva de Nacional Socialismo. The, well, you might translate it as the, the Nationalist Strike Force. Uh, these two merged to create one of the longer-named fascist organizations, Fe de la Jonce, uh, which was an electoral and paramilitary failure, essentially, in the early 1930s. They didn't actually gain a whole lot of seats in Parliament, although they did have a couple. Uh, they engaged in some paramilitary action, although they were largely defeated by the significantly more powerful and better organized Spanish left, which at the time was roughly divided uh, amongst socialists, communists, and anarchists. With the outbreak of the Spanish Civil War, however, in the mid-1930s, um, the Federalhons uh, saw a very different future. Uh, intervention by the Nazis and the Italians um, and also others, but but these were the, the, the biggest interveners in the Spanish Civil War. Uh, the Civil War was a victory for the military, which was actually the major belligerent, not the fascists. It was primarily Franco and the Spanish military that fought against the Spanish Republic, which at the time was ruled by a popular unity government, a government that united uh, some of the more moderate parts of the left and more traditional lowercase liberals. However, the Civil War also saw the rise and appearance of several earnestly communist areas. Uh, for example, Barcelona was run by a anarcho-communist organization for quite some time during the Civil War. However, that side failed. Uh, it was the nationalists, uh, the right wing, who ultimately succeeded. However, in order to govern the country, uh, Franco did not want it to be just a straight-up military dictatorship. Instead, he enlisted what he considered to be the most promising of the members of the right-wing coalition uh, as the face of the regime. And who did he pick but Fe de la Jonce, except that he forced them to accept also the Carlists, who is a, it's a particular brand of monarchism in Spain, uh, into their organization. Uh, so then they became Fet de la Jonce, which is, again, it's just like a, just a tor terrible mouthful of a fascist organization. And Fet de la Jonce was the official political party of the Spanish state 
from 1937, the conclusion of the Civil War, until the end of the Franco regime in 1977, quite a long time. Now, an organization that had even less success uh, was one founded in Brazil uh, in 1932 by a man named Plinio Salgado, uh, the Brazilian Integralists. Uh, Integralism was a name of a series of fascist and extremely conservative movements that operated not just in Brazil, but also in Portugal uh, during the 1920s and the 1930s. But the Integralist movement that uh, Salgado founded uh, was really more a classic Italian fascist mimicry party. Uh, However, because it was in Brazil, uh, they couldn't be quite racist in the same way as Italian fascists or German fascists. They were anti-Semitic, but not necessarily officially. And while, of course, the party's politics and policies were designed in order to maintain the white supremacist society of Brazil and even to double down on it, that didn't mean that there weren't black members of the party or even black leaders of the party, and there were. Uh, In other ways, however, the integralist group was a very, like, standard textbook fascist organization. They were nationalists, they sought election, like electoral success in the Brazilian government, Uh, they mainly failed, they had a paramilitary wing, Uh, they had youth groups, they had um, various social events to try to organize people, they were extremely violent. However, uh, their experience in uh, government was actually quite the opposite of the Falange in Spain, uh, quite the opposite of the Spanish experience after uh, Brazil's uh, appearance of a dictatorship in 1937, uh, and in this case, in the Brazilian case, run by a man named Getulio Vargas. uh, They were not picked to lead the government, but were instead specifically excluded by it. Uh, They were made illegal, and they were not allowed to organize. Uh, Vargas did not have any desire to share power or to use them as a, you know, as a front for his political organization. Moving on to an even less successful fascist organization, we have the Silver Shirts in the United States, a fascist organization founded in 1933 and again modeled on paramilitary organizations in the 1930s, uh, in this case specifically the Nazi SA This was an absolute failure, actually, Uh, a total failure to contest or gain state power at all. Uh, They fully collapsed by the time the United States entered the war. So the big takeaways here about fascism in the 1930s is that it was building on the successes of the 1920s. And fascism in the 1930s is joining communism as the ascendant, powerful ideology in the world. Uh, These were mass movements and attempts at state power uh, essentially everywhere. There were fascist organizations in almost every country, in Europe, in the Americas, and in many other places as well. Uh, The 1930s are also the real time, the really only time that there were both these small paramilitary fascist organizations that we are unfortunately still familiar with today, as well as multiple states ruled by fascist parties. And this isn't just Germany and Italy, but also, as I mentioned before, uh, in some in some senses, uh, Austria had been ruled by fascist organizations in the 1930s, Romania as well, Spain. The 1930s is also when we begin to see the beginnings of what fascism means for the people who live under it, uh, a unification of the political movement, fascism, and the state which it gains control of, uh, political policing, uh, political violence. Uh, and also extreme danger for people who live in countries that neighbor fascist countries. Uh, However, for the full culmination 
of that danger, namely the Second World War and the Holocaust. Uh, you'll have to wait until next week's episode covering the 1940s. Until then, I'm Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics, and urging you to check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism, all one word. And to get in touch with me at Hist of the Right on Twitter. All right, thanks very much, and I'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.